You are listening to the Pseudo Show on Sunrise Robot. Find out how you can support us at sunriserobot.net slash support. Welcome to the Pseudo Show. I'm your host, Justin Edwards, and this is episode 22. And today I have the pleasure of a special guest today. I've actually been trying to track him down for a couple months now and finally pulled it together. I am sitting across from documentary filmmaker, film professor, colleague of mine, Scott Thurman. Hey, Justin. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. I am just trying to get some work done here. I was interrupted and uh, <laughs> just kidding. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. So uh, on the pseudo show, we interview artists, filmmakers, musicians, etc. Any creative types. We like to talk about creative processes and kind of your influences growing up and how you ended up to where you are today. Um, to get us going, why don't you, you just, how do you introduce yourself? Like, tell us a bit about what you're up to and what you do. You know, just actually yesterday, I thought I've got to start telling people my career is teaching film or teaching video production. Okay. I don't feel comfortable saying I'm a documentary filmmaker. I don't make a living (laughs) as a documentary filmmaker. I make a living as a teacher now. And um, that's kind of how I pay my bills. Um, Documentary filmmaking is a hobby that I have perfected. <laughs> yeah. So I spent a lot of time, you know, watching documentaries and researching my own projects and um, working on that in the summertime and throughout the breaks. But uh, I, you know, my first documentary or my one and only kind of successful documentary um, was a home run in terms of getting exposure out there from what I predicted, what my goal was. Um, and even at that, as successful as it was, I still didn't, you know, it didn't make much money at all. Documentaries just don't make a lot of money unless you're mm-hmm. Michael Moore. Or, um, you know, you've got a particular topic that just gets sought after and, and there's a bidding war and you're able to find a distributor that pays a huge amount for it, like Weinstein Company or somebody. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, they're just not very profitable, so... Um, I, I say that I'm a teacher, not a documentary filmmaker. Okay. But um, that being said, you know, we can talk documentary filmmaking all day long, and I can tell you all about how kind of I developed that. Definitely. Um, so why don't you take us back to that then? Just starting out, what made you think that film might be an option for you to pursue as career, hobby, et cetera, whatever? You know, you're, yeah. Were you just a kid growing up in Texas, and you like love the movies? Or I, I kind of came through it from the still photography world. Okay. I guess a little bit. I mean, I made little movies and spoof things. We, uh, me and some friends would do like SNL type skits and things like that, and mm-hmm. of course music videos. I think one of the first uh, videos I did. Um, we did the Paul Simon You Can Call Me Al song. Oh, yeah. I love that. And uh, I loved that song. Uh-huh. And so we did it. I, I think my friend was Chevy Chase and I was Paul Simon. Or <laughs> yeah. Maybe the other way around. But it's kind of a funny video if you ever get a chance to see uh-huh. the real thing. Um, did that and slowly kind of – I was always interested in – from a comedic uh-huh. perspective. From a theater and comedic s- standpoint because I was in theater. I uh, – did some like one act plays and stuff in high school and then um was making these little funny videos um and ended up going into news 
um, out of uh, high school, junior college, studied communications and started working for the news station and started, you know, shooting a little bit of camera in the studio. Not a lot of knowledge or expertise required for those type of jobs, just entry level news production. Um, And uh, that um, after that, I uh, took a little break from college, went, um, worked for a PBS station in Florida, um, but I wasn't really doing too much video production. I was doing more of what's called master control, where you're just kind of Hmm. the operations recording stuff in the studio. And then from there, I went um, into fine art, studied photography, printmaking, painting, and other, just studied art history, um, and became much more knowledgeable about just the whole history of visual arts. Um, and then it was from that that I studied documentary filmmaking in grad school. Okay. And my interest in documentary filmmaking, aside from other um, styles, modes of filmmaking, was that I found documentaries the most interesting at that time. I was really eh, – I kind of developed a snob, like a documentary snob perspective that I'm trying to get out of. <laughs> um, but I, I just uh, – I felt like fiction movies – if it didn't have really great acting, it I couldn't suspend disbelief. I couldn't mm. get into it. It's a really big deal. Yeah, definitely. for me especially. And so I found um, documentaries were more commonly on average good than fiction movies. I thought fiction movies were hit or miss, whereas documentaries, if you're at least interested in the topic, you'll learn something from it even if the filmmaking is bad. It seems like. I mean, in spite of the filmmaking. I mean, yeah. not always, but for the most part, you could still learn something from it. So uh-huh. what I found most interesting about documentary was that it could inform and entertain. It was useful. I felt like you know, I could have purpose and not just make art for art's sake and try to entertain somebody with some random story um, mm. that I found interesting. But I could take a topic that people could learn from and be interested in, and then I could have my stylistic kind of – um, spin on it all and um, try to entertain at the same time that you're giving them a little medicine of information. Yeah, spoonful of sugar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like those kind of aspects and approach. Where did you end up going? You went to um, I stayed in a Texas, master of fine arts program? In North uh, Texas, uh, okay. University of North Texas in uh-huh. Denton, which is north of Dallas, Fort Worth. North of Dallas. And, and that was... It wasn't just general filmmaking. It was specifically documentary, documentary filmmaking. filmmaking. So you knew yeah. going in that that's what you would yeah. be studying. Yeah. And, and I was just telling a student a second ago that I went in with several ideas of documentary projects, whereas I had other students that I was going to, you know, starting the program that, oh, we okay, we got to do a documentary. I, I need to come up with some ideas. And, and you know, I've got a list of 20 ideas. I'm, <laughs> I'm just ready to, to – hammer through those and so that was just telling the student hey you've got this doc production class this summer that i'm going to be teaching come into it with several ideas so we can hit the ground running that's great yeah have stuff rather than flying by the seat of your pants Mm -hmm. because we all know how those projects ends up right i I mean why are you here if not to (laughs) tell visual stories you know yeah i think that's a that's a big part um for the listeners out there i also am a film professor here at the school we're, we're teaching at um, and, and that's kind of one of our, our common experiences as um, teaching production courses and, and, and wanting to see kind of how you're coming into something with a story to tell that you can't wait to tell, right? And that's kind of the excitement that will keep you 
doing a great job um, and, and also just will make you stand out. I think you, you can really tell the projects where students just made it up the night before because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, it's due. I got to come up with something versus mm-hmm. those who actually really want to explore storytelling and have a knack for it and want to kind of em- embrace that preparation is a big part of that. Um, so as you're going through your, your program, were there any particular um, films or, or filmmakers that kind of stood out as influences for you that you said like, oh, I see how they did that, and I think that's the kind of... Yeah, I think everybody, every documentary filmmaker will tell you Errol Morris is right. you know maybe one of their favorite filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, his film Thin Blue Line kind of changed the rules for the use of reenactment in documentaries. Um, not necessarily saying using reenactment to say, hey, this is what happened, but using it to say, is this what happened? Kind of pro- pro- hmm. propping the question um, with the use of the re- reenactment and um, showing variations of that reality, quote unquote, um, from the witnesses who witnessed this this crime um, and using that to kind of slowly kind of reveal one piece of the story at a time until mm-hmm. you, the viewer, make up your mind and figure out the story. You, you're you almost like the private investigator. He unfolds stories in such a way that um, you feel like you're learning and, and getting clues and um, accomplishing something, learning for yourself, thinking for yourself, rather than being told like by a Voice of God narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that style really kind of transformed documentary filmmaking. So he was a huge influence I would say even before I became, you know, aware of that in um, in grad school, I liked his, the more comedic kind of um, documentaries um, mm-hmm. that maybe didn't have a lot of, um, you know, uh, information or uh, what should I say? D- maybe didn't have as much worthy content, um, but. Uh, still, you know, entertained and and sure. we're, we're about true stories, mostly personal stories um, of uh-huh. some sort that were fun um, in some way. And so, you know, a couple of documentaries, Billy the Kid. It's not about Billy the Kid, the Western. Yeah, I theater. saw this one though. Yeah, but it's about this little kid yeah. and the access that this kid, filmmaker yeah. got to him was pretty amazing. Um, the moments that she captures, you know, him talking to this girl that he likes and. Mm-hmm. Um, just everything. A lot of that I found technically, you know, she would get from a wireless microphone that you can pick up what people are saying from a distance. And um, I've, I found a way to use that in uh, my documentaries to capture that intimacy when you can't, you know, f- be right there next to them or follow them all the time. That wireless mm-hmm. mic can and audio can kind of fill in the gaps. Fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, those are great kind of tools of the trade, different approaches that we mm-hmm. kind of see. Um, you know, there's different approaches in the ways you want to tell a story. How much do you want to involve an audience in that process? Mm-hmm. Or like you said, are you more just like expositing with mm-hmm. like a narrator telling mm-hmm. you these things? Um, yeah, I, I, I think there's such a rewarding um, experience potentially with documentary film every time you go into one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I kind of agree with you in the same way that narrative film is always hit or miss and mostly miss. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's, I myself, like I'm a snob about narrative mm-hmm. film. I'm just mm-hmm. so hard to please where I'm just like, yeah, I can't 
suspend disbelief when I can see this the screenwriter, <laughs> yeah. you know, manipulating the story in a way that's mm-hmm. just like cheating to me. Well, and that's it. There are too many. There are not too many, but there are a lot more cogs in the gear. Um, you know, there are a lot uh, more people trying to make a fiction film happen, mm-hmm. and so a lot more opportunities for people to drop the ball or to not live up to maybe the director's vision or so it's a lot more difficult whereas with documentary it still takes a team mm-hmm. of people when you look at pre-production and especially after you have something you want to sell it um, working with producers in that regard but um, the actual um, production is um, a lot more doable not mm-hmm. only in terms of the fact that it's fewer people but just um, cost expensive how much you know it is to get a camera and a mic and go and follow a subject yeah um so i you know the documentary i referenced earlier um that had some success i started in grad school and it was pretty cheap to make yeah tell us about that because i knew that it was just going to be like a thesis project Mm -hmm. but that became the feature that Mm -hmm. it became um, tell us about that pro- project. Uh, my grad school program was three-year program and uh, initially intended to have a documentary each year. The second year, I, I started this project on um, the science, um, uh, uh, the science specifically the teaching of evolution in Texas public schools. Mm-hmm. It's coming under fire. Always has been a controversial topic. Um, but uh, I was interested in talking with teachers. Um, that were science teachers that, uh, you know, considered themselves to be theistic evolutionists, religious people who taught evolution and saw no conflict between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was looking to kind of profile those people rather than, you know, make some kind of science documentary that Nova or PBS could do. I wanted to highlight some people and hear their personal stories um, and then kind of um, weave in a little bit of the science, you know, and the scientific mm-hmm. method so people can understand that a little bit better because mostly i felt like there was a disconnect between the public and uh the you know modern science um understanding of basic scientific principles um so i uh got you know did get as good of access to the school uh, the classroom as i wanted to and uh, meanwhile the state board of education was reviewing the science standards for the entire state for all their public schools um, these standards do two things. They guide the teachers in terms of what they need to teach mm-hmm. that they'll be tested on. But more importantly, and why there was such a big battle, is these standards influence the textbook publishers because the textbook publishers cater their language to Texas political rhetoric. They're one of the leading. Because yeah. Texas buys all of their books from a centralized kind of buying market. And so mm-hmm. they spend a whole lot of money on these things and publishers know that and they're going to cater their books to that but they're wow. not going to spend as much time revising and editing it for other state standards because pretty much everybody they else kind of falls in line yeah so they kind of lead the way in that regard and i was learning all about this and thought okay well maybe you know behind the scenes there's this political element but i wasn't interested in the politics i didn't want to get involved in that too much Um, But I did go to those board meetings and started filming, just rolling on pretty much everything. So I had tons and tons of hours of footage. And and then 
as it got more and more heated, I started reading articles in the New York Times and and other more you know national uh, markets that were following this. And I f- I thought, well, hey, there's a much wider audience here that I could tap into and. So I didn't finish that project the second year, and it went into the third year. I got permission to turn it into my third year thesis film capstone documentary project and expand it a little bit. And so that's when it really started to get into the political side of things, and they finally voted on that, and I had a thesis film. And meanwhile, they start the next cycle subject in the political – uh, process and that was the social studies and history mm-hmm. and it became more con- controversial than the science wow um dealing with issues of separation of church and state okay thomas jefferson our founding fathers and um just uh, political anything that could be politicized was politicized it so wasn't point, about yeah, education it was about wow. pushing your political perspective uh-huh. Um, Rewriting history, literally. To, me, to match your political wow. preference. So um, I got contacted by some producers in New York that wanted to do a documentary on the social studies and history, Texas textbook wars. Okay. Um, and Because they were doing research on it, and they found my stuff. They're like, oh, uh, you've already been in the middle And I'd audience. already been doing the whole science, and uh-huh. they said, would you be interested in continuing this to social studies and history? And I said, yeah, well, let's... Let's talk about it and negotiate. And as we were negotiating, huh. I began filming the, those meetings and finally came to an agreement and joined efforts. So I had a little bit more money. Nice. Eventually a lot more money to pay a professional editor and some other folks, graphics, things like that, a musician. Um, and I was able to turn this story about science that may have been a national interest but – somewhat of a limited audience in terms of people who are into the science, mm-hmm. um, into an even wider audience that people who now, okay, here's this evolution debate that people have been talking about for centuries, mm-hmm. and now we have this um, uh, uh, this uh, social studies um, issue that is really speaking to people much more on the surface. I mean, one particular moment in the film deals with um, the main character, Don McElroy, who um, wants to get rid of hip-hop and add country music yeah. to a list Don't of... talk about hip-hop. But... Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, and, and you ask, how do, what does that have to do with the standards? <laughs> you know, it's like... So it was pretty much a blatant representation, if not a small, like, meaningful, you know, in terms of the other more important... Um, standards that they were reviewing. Yeah. But it represented um, a clear um, example of someone putting their own opinion or taste, you know, into what students learn, disregarding what, you know, is out there, reality, what the fact, the reality of the world, <laughs> yeah. you, might, you might call it. We're going to pretend hip-hop wasn't a thing. Right. Can we do that? Let's Thanks. just take that out. <laughs> So, um, and let's add Ronald Reagan in there while we're at it. <laughs> yeah, can we get some more him and, yeah, some more Nancy. Some great things these people have done. Um, so, yeah, it, it, from that, it basically, I yeah, um, was able to um, move in with one of the producers in New York and edit this thing over the course of nine months. We probably edited for about two months. Um, but okay. it was, you know, two weeks on and then let's let's – show this to several kind of focus groups and friends and Mm -hmm. um, get some feedback and then kind of rework it. And I would go back to Texas and shoot 
a couple more key interviews to fill in the gaps and sure. kind of go back and forth there with post and production mm-hmm. until we finally finished it. Gosh, yeah. So give us a sense of the timeline. So you, when you were a student, you know, that's when you started the project to mm-hmm. – it took you about know, three years, three, three and a half years. Three plus years from mm-hmm. start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and where is that at right now? Is that still streaming on Netflix? Have they it is. Up and down? Yeah. Um, the Revisionaries um, got a Netflix deal, which is nice. I'm trying to get a Netflix deal for my movie right now, actually. Um, but that's, you know, that's always the the final seven project is we would want people to see it now. Like, mm-hmm. what's like, I've made mm-hmm. something. I want to share it. How do I share it? Um, and you, you had, you know, your project was so successful and you had a great festival run and some, a big success at Tribeca Film mm-hmm. Festival, which is, was a big deal. So the right? producers were from New York uh-huh. and then we ended up, um, while we were in progress finishing up with the film, we, um, got involved with this thing in New York called the, um, Film Week. What is it? Uh, NYC Film Week. Gosh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm kind of forgetting exactly. Well, was, what. It's yeah. basically a um, uh, one-stop shop to meet with uh, potential distributors, broadcasters, and other producers that may want to put money into your mm-hmm. uh, work in progress mm-hmm. um, piece. And so we we pitched it there and found a couple of other producers that could. Uh, that had a lot more contacts in terms of uh, distributors and broadcasters. So um, brought those guys on, and um, they had a little leeway in getting us, helping us get into Tribeca. Um, mm-hmm. I talked with that uh, in that producer recently, and he said, you know, hands down, uh, it's the film and the quality of the film that will get you in. But having the context of knowing who the kind of, um, oh, what did he call them? Um, not deal breakers, but uh, basically there there are people at the festival that um are just hired on or just you know um uh, volunteers to help you know decide okay this movie's crap or this movie's worth viewing and they yeah, push kind it of up a gatekeeper right what should be played right. here or not yeah. and so um no, having context really helps you in getting your film past those gatekeepers because who knows maybe a gatekeeper might not recognize you know any good quality yeah, in the film and it might not get element. seen by yeah. upper level people in the festival that actually would you might love it yeah yeah so getting it kind of past that for sure but then letting the merit of the speak film for speak for itself. Yeah. So he was able to, you know, help that along a little bit. But nice. we actually had, you know, offered to show at South by Southwest or Tribeca. I really wanted mm. South by being yeah. from Texas. This is a Texas issue. But um, we had so much interest in it from Tribeca and so much um, support in helping to promote it. Um, not to mention um, more money to get some of the characters there for Q and A's. Wow. Yeah. Um, and you know the you know one of the kind of chief of operations there calling me personally to say you know I loved the film and talked with me for an hour really just won us over. Um, and nice. so we decided to do that also in part because we wanted this to be seen as a national kind of issue documentary relevant to a wider audience and not limit ourselves by saying, okay, just Texas. If you're not in Texas, why would you care? 
So that helped us kind of get out of that. And um, Tribeca screening, we pitched, um, we emailed several um, distributors, um, about a dozen, and uh, uh, broadcasters to attend that screening um, to try to get them all there at the same premiere screening Mm -hmm. um, and to try to create some kind of bidding war, hopefully, which didn't happen. But, you know, that's the (laughs) plan. That's the point, yeah. And um, showed the film, and we ended up getting an award at Tribeca, the audience – or not audience award, the uh, special jury award, which is kind of the second place documentary okay. award. And um, that was um, several jury member on there, but um, Michael Moore was um, one of those, and okay. he was the one that spoke and gave the award um, to me. And that was a lot of fun, and I got right. to talk with him. He, he later invited us to his – film festival the traverse city yep. um film festival michigan right yeah mm-hmm. which was maybe a one i mean one of the best for sure though the way they treat you is just the community yeah it's amazing like how much <laughs> i i walked up my you know the, you get a swag bag of stuff at every festival it's usually stuff that you toss out right but um at that one they gave you so many things i had a, ch- a full cherry pie <laughs> in my swag bag, you know, and, you know, thinking this is going to make it back to Texas. Um, of course, I couldn't get it on the airplane, so I had to scarf it down at the airport one morning oh, on the way awesome. out. So if you are going to Traverse City Film Festival, eat your cherry pie okay. before you get to the airport. So, yeah, we had the uh, Tribeca. The best, we got though. the award. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, we also got it on to Independent Lens, PBS, uh, which was a huge deal yep. for us, not only for financial reasons, but um, exposure. Mm-hmm. The widest audience by far saw mm-hmm. it all on PBS. I had people calling my mom That's wild. saying, hey, I saw Scott's documentary and, uh, from different states and uh-huh. had that deal. And then we had – I'm trying to think of the third – um, achievement there. Oh well, finally got a distribution deal. Um, right, Kino Lorber. Now you're online and you're. Uh huh. And so had their help in getting um, uh, getting that out in different different ways. Whether that's Netflix, DVD, they helped us pay for the cover design and okay. artwork. Um, and you know, um, commerce leads to compromise and there were certain (laughs) things that I had to kind of give up and really each step along the way in the creative process, you are collaborating with people Hmm. and there is a certain amount of compromise that has, that the director has to have with these other creatives and, you know, even, you know, producers for fiduciary reasons, you Hmm. know, so you're trying to make the it happen with all of these obstacles that you don't foresee as a creative person. You think you've got this vision and I'm going to tell a better movie than I can, I've ever seen, you know, and you don't realize all the hurdles that you have to go through that have prevented these other filmmakers Mm -hmm. in ways that you think you can surpass them. Mm -hmm. Well now, okay, you're in the game. Let's play the game. Now you, you recognize these real hurdles and you have to work with people and collaborate with people. And, um, one of the most rewarding collaborations I had on the project was working with the musician. Oh, yeah. And seeing uh, – it was so wonderful to see my vision kind of come to light or at least the the meaning of a particular scene completely changed by the score wow. and how yeah. the score can really give that unity to a lot of disparate elements and, um, and how fluid this particular musician, Mark Orton – um, who played with the band 
Tin Hat Trio out of uh, Portland, Oregon, mm. originally New York, I think. Uh, this guy, as a grad student, I contacted and he said, oh, yeah, sure, I can, you know, help you. Just keep me informed. And, you know, here I am, a grad student, had, didn't have any money, and this guy's willing to hear me and kind of talk to me about the project. Wow. And eventually when we did get the money to raise, he was worth every penny of it. just was a That's great, so cool. great process. And, of course, the editor who mm. – I really had to co-write this story with me. It's documentaries are real organic a lot of times, especially observational ones that are happening, current events. Um, and they take a lot of writing from the editor, a lot of um, direction from the editor. Um, so it was a very um, involved process. Um, what did our supervising editor called it? Exploratory edit. Okay. Finding the story in the edit mm-hmm. room. Yeah, because really. I'd, I'd edited a thesis version of this, so I had a rough framework of what it needed to be. But I've never written a script. I've never worked in fiction in, in any way. And so mm-hmm. I was really trying to take this real these real-world events and my idea of what entertainment and drama is mm-hmm. and trying to work with the editor to find those dramatic elements and squeeze those out and mm-hmm. construct some kind of narrative. Um, well, I could say, I mean, I haven't seen the film myself. I think it's, again, I'm fully deserving of the awards and, and accolades. I think it's really turned out fantastic. Um, and again, listeners, go check it out on Netflix, The Revisionaries by Scott Thurman. Um, so, so that was, you know, a real crowning achievement. Like people would, you know, kill to have that, you know, your, your film was finished and picked up and distributed and here you are. Um, and it's always like that whole question of like, okay, now what? Now what are you going to do with it? You like you said it just at the start, you you haven't turned that into some fledgling like filmmaking career, right? You we're still paying the bills. We still got you know things to do, put gas in the car, et cetera. And how do we get to those through those day to days? Um, you know, I'm I'm in the same boat similarly in the sense of wanting to have that creative hobby and that fun of you know. I, I'm a narrative filmmaker. I made a feature film last year, like big deal. Um, what what does that do for me? You know, other than continuing that process as a creative person and yeah. saying like, there was that thing that I did that I finished, which is a big deal, and I think we can celebrate and we always will always point to it um, as future inspiration. Um, but I think part of our common struggle as artists is like always the next thing is like i i still want to do this right i i would still love to pull the next thing together and Mm -hmm. and have that next story to tell um but it wasn't like our successes have paved the path like people aren't knocking on the door with a million bucks like hey well yeah not very (laughs) financially rewarding at all right that's not the 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 experience and what i learned from it the contacts and doors I kind of walked through have now been opened, will be opened a little bit more for me for mm-hmm. my next project. Mm-hmm. Um, but also um, the uh, um, the other thing I mentioned, just was recently asked about this. Oh, um, the jobs I got after that. This job mm-hmm. that I'm working now mm-hmm. can be probably 75% attributed to that film. And 25% to my degree, you know. (laughs) 
So um, there's I say that. the same and, thing. I've I've made a feature yeah. film. I can open up doors for future work because of that. Before I started working here, I was doing some freelance work in Austin, Texas. I'm working on other documentaries specifically because mm. um, they had heard of Revisionaries and had carved out sort of a political documentary in Texas mm. genre there that you know, it's a little bit more knowledgeable than most people on. So I was hired for those projects. So it opened a lot of doors. Um, Unfortunately, none of those had George Washington in the center. (laughs) Not yet. Right. Um, And so, so take me through that, this post process where you are now and, you know, as you know, get as artsy fartsy with it as you want, you know, how do you find your next story? Like, I know you have one going right now. How, Mm -hmm. how did you decide I'm done with the revisionaries. Mm-hmm. What do I want to do now? Well, you mentioned earlier, you know, kind of you pick your projects, something that you're extremely passionate about. I mm. think everybody's kind of heard that. And um, it's not always entirely known by a lot of people, but yeah, you got to be extremely passionate about it. But mm. beyond that, your passion's got to be sustainable. Mm. I mean, I'm passionate about a lot of stuff one day, and then the next day I'm, I'm <laughs> done. It's like the, I always think of adaptation, the movie adaptation, uh-huh. and He's talking to the the main character there, who um, you know loves this flower, and he's obsessed with this flower. And the um, journalist is interviewing him on the phone, and um, he's talking about how when he was a kid, he just loved fish, you know, and every kind of different type of fish. And and she's like, "Well, what happened with that?" And he's like, "Well, one day I just said fuck fish." <laughs> <laughs> and so now when I, you know, I think of something that somebody's really passionate about. Careful, it's not your fish, you know. Because yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, something that you're passionate about that's sustainable, that you know that you can keep that passion. It's mm. not about just about having the passion. It's just as much about sustaining that passion. So yeah. beyond that, where does it come from? Everywhere. Huh. Just be open. Listen. News television, culture, any any type of media that you're interested in, Facebook, you know, all of these different issues um, are are potentially subject matter for documentaries. Um, I am interested most in people, mm. fascinating stories. I'm kind of a sucker for near-death experiences. And <laughs> I just think it's, it's pretty amazing um, what people, how what they rationalize and, and come to and, and really find themselves when they're suddenly put in a position where it's like, okay, this is it. Hmm. You're done. Wow. You know, what now? What do you think? You know, what are your religious beliefs? You know, and uh, do you really, you know, respect God or, you know, and, and w- see that as a path or do you denounce him at that point? Hmm. Um, all of these um, things are, are, are really interesting to me. I'm, I haven't started a near-death experience story yet, but uh-huh. I hope to one day. Um, and, but at the root of Just it are people. Just out of the fascination with people, yeah. And, and their, uh, their um, dramatic element, uh, dramatic you know, aspects of, of things that kind of fit their, their story. Humor and comedy. I mean... There's I, I I call my last documentary the Revisionaries kind of a tragic comedy because uh-huh. it's funny but it is so awful the yeah. the, the subject matter and the that. implications of what they're doing and so um, for me that's the reality of this world you know and my life it's hilarious how sad you know <laughs> it can be um, and to kind of remove yourself from it all and to see it from that perspective you know helps me in down times but also keeps me level-headed when I'm feeling 
pretty important, high and mighty. <laughs> Good. Um, and now we get to feel high and mighty every day because of our students looking up to us. Oh, right? yes. They <laughs> admire the hell out of me. <laughs> um, so one question I also like to ask kind of towards the end is for, for listeners out there who might be interested in kind of exploring, you know, they're looking into maybe doing stories on people and doc films and they want to kind of jump into it. What do you say is like, what are first baby steps for like, Hey, is this something you want to do? Here's what they might want to do. Start researching that topic. Mm -hmm. Start, start researching and finding out as much information about it as possible. You look for dramatic elements Look for characters in conflict. Mm. Yeah, it really comes down to kind of even you know here our, we teach kind of story one on one stuff is character with a goal and there's conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, very simple, but like mm-hmm. at least have that mm-hmm. right. A lot of students are upset when I I lay down these kind of groundworks for the you know what's been found to be the history, not just the mm-hmm. modern history of storytelling, but we're going back you know several decades you know and even prior to that thinking about how stories developed and um they feel like it's limiting and yeah. it's like saying oh we got, we have to do a um a documentary it's like ah oh, i wanted to do a fiction you know it's like whatever the rules are there's going to be people who yeah, think it's too limiting think of it as handcuffs when but it's like within a character i mean almost every story if they are arguing about oh you know i don't want to be limited by a character and a goal and a conflict <laughs> storytelling i say well t- find me a movie and that doesn't have characters with a goal, some kind of goal, and some kind of conflict or obstacles or a challenge of some sort that you're following them on, those are just the roots, the seeds of um, you can a, a do good anything, story. Right, yeah, I think that's, like we say, that's the minimum required, but not requirement in the sense that, yeah, it's a limitation, but that it's an expectation, mm-hmm. that it's the potential for drama comes from character Mm -hmm. wanting to do something and there's there's something in his way or her way um but yeah i i like that kind of that would be a a great first step in looking for a a project if you're doing another yet this great idea for oh i want to do a doc film on this guy it's like well look at that guy and let's talk about him as a character Mm -hmm. and i think that's one thing i appreciate about you too and, and treating you know in doc film you're doing this on real people but when it comes to that you're doing it with the medium of, of a film and you're wanting to, you know, sit an audience down for an hour and a half or so and tell them this story, mm-hmm. that's a real person, but that's also a character mm-hmm. in the movie, right? Yeah. Um, and that's why you kind of ride that line between um, entertainment and information. that information. is like the entertainment side is these are characters and we are manipulating mm-hmm. the story here, um, even though they're real. And beyond kind of finding a character and establishing, okay, is there tension here? Does this issue have some kind of conflict um, that people that that creates that drama in the story? Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I think for documentaries, one um, pitfall is that um, too often um, people are fascinated and passionate about the topic 
or a particular character, and not so much about how visually entertaining it can be. So you end up having mm. a talking head. Oh, yeah. Tons of, I, you know, when I first started this documentary, Revisionaries, it was scientists, you know, and teachers and experts, and the sound of one hand clapping, you know, um, oh. just, all, just a lot of information, dense information, talking heads all the way through, um, and no kinetic energy you know to it whatsoever and so the second step i would tell someone kind of developing a documentary is find those dramatic elements but then begin to think okay is there a visual side of this that um can show rather than tell Mm. um is there a competition is there something that's happening or that i can get archival footage of how it happened to visualize this. I mean, look at Ken Burns docs. Yeah, there are a lot of talking head and they're expository, but he's, you know, got a really dynamic use of photographs that mm-hmm. he's kind of pioneered. He actually used it from another documentary filmmaker <laughs> previously. Oh, he's still City of Gold. But um he really gave that energy to those stills and um mm-hmm. this historical world. So, if you can show rather than tell, it just adds the dramatic um, yeah, element. Yeah, that's the uh very common, you know, cliche point, but it's always about showing, not telling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like that too, in the sense of finding. Um, I think doc films, you know, in a very broad sense, get a bad rap from talking head experiences, right? Oh, it's a documentary, and like that's that's why they aren't big blockbuster yeah. films because they have a bad reputation. But yeah. that's not true. Like, yeah. docu- like you said at the beginning, documentary films are more entertaining, more satisfying. I think, yeah, I mean, what I like most about uh, documentaries is that I know that if I'm interested in the topic, I can put it on, and in spite of what that filmmaker's take on it all, I, there are factual pieces of information that I can learn from, mm-hmm. and it's the, the heart of it. It's documenting something, mm-hmm. and so that, that pure documentation of it, if it's not filtered too much, you're learning yeah, that from alone in some is way. Even worth the price. Of mm-hmm. So hopefully it's it's not taken out of context so much that you know you might call it a movie. In fact, Michael Moore has recently said he doesn't want to call these documentaries. He wants to call he wants to call it movies. He's making movies. Yeah, he is making entertainment for sure. Um, well, that's great. Is there anything else you wanted you would like to say going forward? I think this has been really uh, insightful yeah. and yeah. I think I really appreciate your time. Again, this was Scott Thurman. Absolutely. Documentary filmmaker, hobbyist, but he is mm-hmm. a film professor. Don't question that. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time. and um, Thanks, Justin. We'll see you next time. Thank you again so much for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at PseudoJustin. I'd be glad to talk further. And definitely check out our show notes for this one at sunriserobot.net slash pseudoshow slash 22. And be sure to add the revisionaries to your Netflix queue. Um, Definitely want to check out Scott's film, and then you'll get an even better sense of what he's talking about in this episode. For those who want to help us keep the lights on here and support us further, definitely check out iTunes and rate us and review us there. I know you may not use iTunes for your podcast catching, but iTunes is still kind of the hub for all those reviews that keep shows popular and in the spotlight, as it were. And for those interested in possibly supporting us further, check out sunriserobot.net slash support and consider becoming one of our Patreons, our monthly supporters, such as Bruce Edwards, who has kept us going here for the last couple of months. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on The Pseudo Show. (laughs) 